you would keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2, we want to continue in our study there, uh, pick up where we've been all along. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, this has been an extremely useful study thus far, and uh, this morning is kind of a summary point in this portion where we are. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll explain that in a second. Who am I? Who are you? It's a question that everyone wrestles with at one time or another, and sometimes we wrestle with it more than once in life. There's a reason behind that. It's because we mainly gain our identity, the way that we perceive ourselves, through relationships. And every relationship, for better or for worse, at one time or another, changes. This is, whether you know it or not, a picture of a black line. The problem is, it's on a black background. And so it has no defining characteristics. You have to see it in contrast to something else in order for it to understand the, the, the dimensions of it and the reality of it. It needs some sort of contrast to take on its own shape and its own dimensions, and we're an awful lot like that as people. Our identity is formed through the way that we see ourselves in relation to other things and people that are not us in exactly the same way. So we think in terms of being sons or daughters or grandchildren or siblings too. And, and then there's other contrasts and connections that we have. We think about whether we're male or female, our citizenship, the nation we come from, our hobbies, our activities, our employment. And many a person takes their whole identity from their employment, from what they do. Matter of fact, often when you meet people, the first thing you ask is, what do you do? And they kind of identify themselves that way. It's one of the things that's common in our society. And from the very beginning of this letter, this first letter of Peter... Um, he's been helping his disoriented readers who have been involuntarily forced into a new and hostile culture to find themselves again after being wrenched from all of the contexts in which they identified themselves, at least partially. They understood who they were by where they were. These were mainly Jewish believers, but they were for the most part, in Rome or part of the Roman Empire. And in this expulsion of Claudius, they had been sent to this outpost in northern Turkey. And they were disoriented. And really getting a grip on who they were again is sometimes difficult. No one knows this process better than someone who's lost a spouse or their parents or even a child. You can have all the information still there and yet something be not right. And disorientation sets in. Something of their self-identity is ripped from them. We have any number of widows in the congregation and you all know that you went through that. Maybe you've lost a spouse recently like uh, Wendy Smith's brother-in-law, Jack, who's with us this morning. Just recently lost his wife. And, and now there's a, a, a whole resetting of understanding who you are and what that looks like. That process of getting steady again can take a long time. 
And it can also be the same trauma of people that have lost their jobs after being in the same job for a long period of time. Or maybe losing a faculty like sight or hearing or a limb. So that if our identity does not rest in things which cannot be changed under any circumstances, then every time circumstances do change, we're lost, at least for a season. And this much is true for Christians as well as everybody else in the society. This is common to the human condition. It's not unique to us. But it's common because of things that that happen in the whole of human history. We were created as human beings with a certain relationship to God and to the material world around us and to one another, which in the fall was radically and irreparably distorted. Everything was shattered. And it's no wonder then that that so many people around us, especially in our culture today, seem to feel so lost. And at times to, to spin off into strange behaviors, trying to, when I was growing up, the, the term was everybody was trying to find themselves. Like, well, where else would you be but where you are? That great philosophical statement from Buckaroo Bonsai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers crossed the eighth dimension. When Buckaroo Bonsai is, is talking in the nightclub, he says, just remember, wherever you are, there you go. It's true. No matter where you are, that's where you are. But we can lose focus. Man was created in the image of God and to have fellowship with Him, unbroken, and to be His, his representative, His image in the earth. And when we fell, all of that was stripped from us. We stripped ourselves of those self-identifying reference. And we've been trying to redefine ourselves ever since the fall. Proof of this is the total confusion that reigns today in, again, especially in our culture, our society, as so many sadly and grotesquely try to gain a sense of identity. Right now, the current trend is to do it in your sexuality, which is a a concept foreign to the human race prior to Sigmund Freud. Nobody ever thought of themselves as, as defining themselves in terms of their sexuality. But that's, that's the truth of where we are today. Or some of you may find that you're looking for your identity in terms of fame or social standing or ethnic culture or material possession or career or, or your immediate family. And it all goes so horribly and, and terribly wrong and then rings so hollow. In the portion before us this morning, in these verses that we had read, Peter's putting into place the final piece of the Christian believer's self-identity. He's been building it up for us until now, using a number of different pictures, a number of different ways. He began by telling them uh, back in chapter 1 in the early verses that they were to think of themselves as both elect and exiles, that there was a, a dual reality to who they were. Not just elect as God's people, though certainly they were not less than that, but at the same time they were not just exiles, though they were certainly exiles. They had been thrown into this place according to their outward circumstances. So they're both. And both through God's appointment and as part and parcel of God's uh, work of sanctification or setting them apart for himself and of 
being set apart for his purposes by the Holy Spirit. And they were in this place because they were learning how to grow in obedience to Jesus Christ. And so part of their being purified from their sin through the blood of Jesus was being worked out through this exile that they were in. So it was an identity that tied both the inward reality of their conversion, of their having come to Christ, and their adverse external circumstances. They didn't see those as disparate. They were brought together. These weren't in conflict. But in God's sovereign plan, they're welded together by His grace as a unified whole. And the next thing He told them to do was to identify themselves not as hopeless, but as those who were born again to a a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Believers have to cling to that. If we lose that, we get caught up in this present age. They were to think of themselves as those in pursuit of holiness above everything else in life because that's where Christ is taking us. He uses that quote from the Old Testament where God says, Be holy for I am holy. And, and in fact, it, it takes on more than that. You shall be holy for I am holy. It's both a command and an indicative. This is what's going to happen. I'm moving you toward full conformity to my image. So begin to act in that way now. As you're, and yes, that's swimming upstream. It's contrary to the flesh. It's contrary to this world and this present world system. And then he said, you also need to live awestruck at the astounding salvation that's yours in Christ. It is something that is so amazing that even the angels wish they could comprehend it fully. And yet, for us, often as Christians, we take that almost for granted. I'm a Christian, but I've ceased to be amazed by it. Astounded that the God of the universe has saw fit sovereignly to pluck me out of the fallen mass of mankind and redeem me by the blood of the Lamb. It's amazing. And yet, so often, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Like that's just, you know, some other stripe. I, I like pepperoni pizza. That, that isn't it. And, and when we lose that awe and that amazement, we lose something of who we, we really are. And then he saw it too. He called them to, to, to grasp that they were overflowing with God's great divine love. It had been poured out to them in Christ and that, and that then through them, that's to be poured out to the world as, as we sang this morning. And then lastly, he uses the, the metaphor as newborn babes. Newborn infants who have been born again by the Spirit of God. Who have tasted that the Lord is good. That little guy or girl has tasted something good. And when you've tasted the goodness of God... Well, then you you put all that together and you say, if I've tasted it, I want to stay there and have more of it and, and, and drink it in. And if the saying is true that you are what you eat, it isn't long before that goodness begins to translate out into your life. If you eat bitterness and griping and moaning and groaning and focusing on all your ills and not on the wonders of your redemption in Christ, you'll soon take on that persona as well. We've been given the privilege of continuing to slake our soul's thirst on that bottomless well. So all of these so far are different ways that Peter's been pulling threads together to help us build a true Christian identity. 
how Peter's readers and, and then Christians in all generations are to begin to understand who they really are in this world. Some of that identity I think we can take so far is just this. That I belong to God in Jesus Christ as one of His own children. Infinitely beloved and set where and when I am for His good, eternal, and wondrous purposes until I gain my final inheritance. I don't know if you think about yourself that way, but that's where Peter's been moving his readers, and they are in great distress where they are, but he's moving us there too. They were plunged into a hostile culture. We're in the midst of a culture that's becoming more and more hostile. But the principle remains the same. To know who and what I am, not by reference to the, the culture and to the world around me, but according to biblical truth, so that I walk with him in those ways. But he isn't done yet. Peter has saved the best for last. If, as we come to these verses this morning, 4 through 10, he's about to summarize our true identity in Christ and to, and to put it all together in three simple thoughts. But I say simple, but at the same time, they're extraordinarily profound. And then it's from this platform, as he winds up in verse 10 this week, the rest of the book is aimed at saying, now what does it look like to live out that identity in this present fallen world? How do, we, how do we come to that? What does that all look like in the various circumstances of life? And he's going to apply it to husbands and wives. He's going to apply it to their relationship to the, the government, which at that time was quite hostile. He's going to, to mention it in relationship to employment, employer and employee, or as he uses, slaves and, and slaveholders. All of those different things are going to be tied together and brought back to this. Now, now that I'm this person that I see in these opening portions... What does that look like as I live out my life in the world around me? He'll begin to tease out all the ramifications of what it means in, in the way we live here and now in the balance of the letter. So our task today is to see his summary in its fullness, in what he has in these few verses. So we're going to look at the outline. I'm going to follow this outline. It's three simple things. In verses 4 through 5, he's going to give them a word of encouragement. This is his arrangement. And then in verses 6 through 8, he's going to build a warrant from Scripture for why he has that word of encouragement for us, why we take our, this identity that we have. And then lastly, we're going to look in verses 9 and 10 at the fullness of this wondrous identity that he's going to give us in three simple parts that fit together. And they're all right in the text. You won't have to go outside the text in order to see that. So notice again how he gives this sort of summary statement uh, before he examines the things in more detail. So as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let me just look at that summary for just a moment before we move on in the text. You can ask several questions as you read those couple of verses, and the answers are provided for you as you work through it. What is Christ as the cornerstone? What does that mean? 
as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. And then later in verse six, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Who is Christ is the cornerstone. The, the metaphor speaks loudly, doesn't it? He is the foundation of all that God is doing. Everything is summed up in Christ. I love the present thing that happens so often in the church. You hear this sometimes on the radio or on television. What is God doing today? He's doing what He's always been doing. He's summing up all things in Christ. There's no new platform out there, no new purpose in God. He is bringing all things to their final pinnacle in Christ. And He's never deviated from that point. That's always been His plan. And if we don't grasp that, it's funny, we'll then take that and we'll, we'll bring it into the micro-reality of our lives. Well, what is God doing in me? Same thing He's always been doing, conforming you to the image of Christ. But you see, we want to make ourselves the center of that. And in the process, God's plan gets set on the back burner. That's the key. So, who is Christ as the cornerstone? What is He? He is the foundation of all that God is doing. But secondly, then, what relationship to that do I have as you come to Him, a living stone, verse 4, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So what relationship to that do I have? I, too, am a living stone. What does that mean? Well, that's what he's going to tease out in the following portion. I've got to understand what he's getting at there. And then thirdly, what does all this imply? And it's going to be part and parcel of this three-part identity that is the summary of everything we've looked at so far. And that is that I am a priest of the Most High God. If you are born again today, if you're a child of the living God, you've been born again through the Spirit of God, and you say, what does God want me to do with my life? He is not worried about whether or not you're a tinker, a soldier, or anything else. He's worried about you being a priest of the Most High God. And I don't know that we've looked at the the power and the importance of the Christian priesthood the way that Peter brings it into this passage for us and rounds it out. And it's an extraordinarily different way of living life. Will God make me a better typist? I don't know. Will God make me a better mechanic? I don't know. Maybe you don't have the faculty to be a mechanic anyway. If you're like me, I don't know which side of the hammer to use to put the nail in or which side to take it out. Matter of fact, I wasn't sure that the other side was for taking the nail out. It's great for scratching itches on your back that you can't reach ordinarily. So so who am I? Don't think about it in terms of of your profession in the earthly sense. Think about it in the grand scheme of what God is doing in Christ. And then that can be lived out, worked out in any context. So it isn't the context that defines you. It's the reality in Christ. And then that gets lived out in its proper context. I'm a priest of the Most High God. So let's go back. First, there is this word of encouragement in 4 through 5. 
as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's the way it is with Jesus. He was rejected in the sight of men, but he was chosen and precious. So you yourselves, if you're truly a Christian here today, you yourselves, like living stones, as he was a living stone, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, are you struggling? Do sometimes people look down on you or look askance at you or don't treat you as with all seriousness because you're a Christian, especially in this present culture? The encouragement is, well, that's exactly what they did with Jesus. Don't be thrown by that. Don't let that... that send you off and immediately start giving your money to the Christian Defense League. It's not about defending ourselves as Christians. It's about recognizing what an amazing privilege we have to be counted as Christ in this present world. That's a whole different mindset. In relationship to God, He was precious. In relationship to the world, To mankind, especially by the Jewish religious establishment, Jesus knows the tension of the believer in this unbelieving world is being rejected. So he knows our duality. He's been there. He himself knew as the foundation of all God's purposes, and and he knew what it was to have no one really understand that, and to reject him in the process, to treat him as utterly worthless, as a nobody. I worry when Christians are worried about being somebody in society. It's not our goal. It's not our our purview. It's not where we need to go. You too are chosen by God. It's central to His purposes, but will be regarded as nobodies by an unbelieving world. Don't be shocked by all of this. Peter's actually going to use that terminology later in the letter. He's going to come back and revisit that. Don't think it's strange when you go through the fiery trial. It's not strange. It's the way it will be until Christ returns. So don't be shocked by all of this. You are so tied to Christ in your salvation that you become a further example to the world of what He was and is. It's astounding. And thus you share some of the same experience he had. So, next, in verses 6 through 8, he gives us the scriptural warrant. How can he say that? Is Peter just plucking his theology out of the air? Does he just bring that to himself? No. He, he's quoting. And, he, and actually, in this portion, the verses that we've quoted to the, today so far, he's going to make allusions to at least six Old Testament passages. We're only going to be able to look at three this morning. But look at it again. He, he tells you, see, th- it stands in Scripture this way. And what does Scripture say? He's quoting from the Old Testament. We'll look at it in a second. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. The problem is we want honor from the world more than honor from him. But this is the honor that he gives us. The honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, 
The stone that the builders rejected, he's quoting again, has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So in 6 through 8, Peter offers up a a scriptural proof for his argument by alluding to these Old Testament passages. And he puts in the process a number of really important ideas together. And we can only look at three of them this morning. And and even that we're going to do relatively quickly so that we can stick with the passage in front of us. But the first thing is he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, that Jesus is God's cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 16, which speaks directly to God sending Jesus as the cornerstone of his eternal purposes, a portion of which he describes how we will be, how he'll be recognized as such, but that those who trust in him shall not be put to shame. Therefore, Isaiah 28, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not be in haste. We can't unpack all of what's happening in Isaiah 28 this morning, but the basic background is that it's a prophecy against Ephraim, against um, Syria, the northern part of Israel, that had fallen into idolatry. And God is saying you're looking to all kinds of earthly help, especially Egypt in their case, because you're afraid of the attack of the Assyrians. And I'm telling you, that isn't where your foundation is. I wonder how many of us today are more worried about how we'll approach ISIS militarily than how we'll approach it spiritually in Christ being our cornerstone. And he says, I'm going to, one day this is all going to be gone, and you're going to see that the real cornerstone, the real foundation, the real security is Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He then quotes another one that the cornerstone will be rejected. I'm going to set this cornerstone in Isaiah 28, but in, in Psalm 118, we had the whole psalm read this morning, this cornerstone is going to be rejected. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The builders is simply a reference to the the hierarchy in Israel. To the Jews who were in charge when Jesus came on the scene. And they didn't want him to be the cornerstone. They liked things status quo, the way it was. And he said this cornerstone is going to be rejected. But not only was he rejected by the Jews, he was rejected by the Gentiles as well. Rome's the one who ended up putting him to death. Maybe at the behest of the Jews, but it was still Rome. He was rejected. And then he goes on to say, but there's one more thing you need to know, and he takes this out of Isaiah chapter 8. That Jesus bears this this dual reality. Those who reject him as such will stumble over him and be destroyed. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Stunning. The one who is the foundation of all God's purposes will be rejected and will in fact become the same one who is a stumbling stone. And here he tells you plain that everyone who rejects God's word, especially as it reveals and relates to Jesus Christ, is destined to be rejected by God. You can't get around it. You stumble at him, you stumble at everything. This is why we're so concerned 
about the cults, the Christian cults, who will not identify Jesus Christ as who and what he is biblically. Because if you reject him as he is presented in the scripture, you reject God, period. So he can't just be an angel. He can't just be someone who became a God. He is either the eternal son of God, the third member of the eternal trinity, or it's some other Jesus. And if you reject the Jesus who's given to you in the Scripture, you've rejected God, and I don't care how religious you are. That's powerful. So he's bringing us back to see the centrality of Christ in this. He is God's foundation, but if you stumble over Him, you are destined to be rejected by God. And I want to make one quick observation before we move on. I want you to notice that all the way through this passage, Peter never makes himself the stone. The focus here is always Jesus Christ, not him. As a matter of fact, if you work through the New Testament, Jesus as the cornerstone of God's work in and through the church, at over, well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke... There's seven New Testament passages that refer to Jesus as the cornerstone, and it's the one that he uses for himself. It's never used of Peter. Peter is not the stone on which the church is built. Christ is. Trust in him and him alone. All those seven passages have to do with the Old Testament image of this stone being applied, of this image of the stone being applied to Jesus Christ, and Jesus himself is the one who makes that application. So Peter's taking this from Jesus' own teaching. He isn't making anything up. He's taking those Old Testament verses and seeing how Jesus applied them to to himself and then brings them to us so that we'll hear them as well. But third, in verses 9 through 10, he's going to bring us to this This three-part, this is the summary of this wondrous identity that we really have. Let's go back to the passage. Picking up in verse 9. But you are a chosen race. That's the first part. Secondly, a royal priesthood. And thirdly, a holy nation. You could say, in other words, a people for his own possession. For what end? that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in light of all this, who are you, Christian, in the world? Who were Peter's readers in their extreme distress as exiles in a hostile culture? Who are believers today in our increasingly hostile culture? There's one thing that I'm sure the Borisics understand is that the Chinese culture is not exactly an easily Christianized culture. They don't think in those terms at all. So how do you maintain your identity in the midst of all this? Well, our identity becomes, remains the same irrespective of what's going on around us. 
And he sums it up in the three concepts that he's given to us here. Three concepts that all of humanity uses, but uses without the light of revelation. And so they misuse it in the process. And the first, and this may be a stunner for some of you, this should be seismic in the way it deals with your heart and mind. Because I don't know if you think of yourself in these terms. I know unless you go back and revisit these often, you don't. But the first is race. Race. A race, a people, a stock, a family. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. It's astounding. There is perhaps no identifier more profound than this one. We live in a day when people, even as Americans, identify themselves by referring to their ethnic or racial background first. So just a quick look this week while I was online was, you see the Ibero-American Action League. I'm an Ibero-American. I'm a Hispanic-American. I go back to my ethnic origin first. Or the German-American club. Or the Asian-American Pacific Heritage Month. Or I'm an Irish-American. Or I'm an African-American. Or an Asian-American. That's, we go to that because we want to have that identity. And he's calling us to a transhuman racial identity. Something that supersedes all of that. We can have all of those things and there's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. It's, it's natural to want to be connected with those that we, we call our people. The stock that we come from. You know, you're, for some people, my wife perhaps, um, her racial identity is Texan. I mean, you're from a different world if you're from Texas. And that's what you are. New Yorkers, we all try to hide our identity. We don't want to be New Yorkers. We all want to go back to that, to that stock that we come from and our ancestry and our family. Matter of fact, in the United States, the Census Bureau... Uh, has rather unscientifically, actually this would be a great, we should have Mark Borisic talking about this now because he did this weird genetic thing that he was predicting all kinds of, of frog cells and how they'll end up mathematically. I'm not sure what that all, I read it and I didn't understand a single word of it. I, I went through it. I said, oh, I'm coming back to something I can read in English. And, uh, but the, the, the Census Bureau in the United States has five major, five major racial categories when you look at the census form. You're white or black or Asian or Hispanic, and then they have two more categories that are kind of fun. American Indian or Alaska Native, that's, that's its own category, and then uh, Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander. Those are the five categories. Now, the scientific community argues back and forth as to whether or not those are legitimate to use at all, whether those racial categories really exist. And scripturally, actually, in the most basic sense, there is at the bottom of it all simply the race of man, humankind. We're all part of the human race. At least I would hope we all are. But from that point, we have lots and lots of subdivisions. 
But this is, the, this is, at this basic point, is what Peter is getting to for his readers and for us. To consider Christians as both sharing a common humanity as having all sprung from Adam, but beyond that, to be an entirely new race. A race of people. One without genetic or social or ethnic considerations. One that transcends every one of those boundaries. There is in God's scheme of things but two races. Regenerate human beings and unregenerate human beings. That's it. So he wants them to think of themselves in those terms. He, he wants them to consider as the Greek word imports here, that our people, our stock, our family is the family of God. And you know full well some of your own family in genetic terms are weird. You don't like them. But they're family. Well, that's the way it is with the church. I love people always saying, well, I come into the church and I find such a strange group of people, I have nothing in common with them. Duh! Except for Christ, you might not have anything in common with them. And so what? So Jesus, the carpenter, got a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector and a proselyte and a, a zealot, some who were cousins and brothers, and threw them all together, and somebody would say, I don't know how to get into that club. I'm not related to any of them. I don't share a common employment with any of them. Jesus didn't care. When we were born again, we were born into the family of God, and God constitutes that an entirely new race. It's astounding. Again, in the lostness of our present day, everybody is scrambling for their ethnic heritage so that they can define themselves. And Christians, of all the people of the earth, are the only ones with the freedom to walk away from that. And it's also one of the reasons why there is never any room for ethnic discrimination within the body of Christ. Never an excuse for racism. For those that are in Him are one race. And so radical is the change. When the Holy Spirit comes to indwell someone, it's to make them an entirely new class of human being. And no, we don't entirely lose all those other characteristics that we share with the, the rest of humanity in Christ. Paul had to deal with this issue very plainly when he wrote to the church at Ephesus because there was a, a problem within the local assembly. The church was... The Jewish Christians had trouble relating to those who were not Jewish, the Gentiles in the church. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, he's got he's to draw their minds to a whole different place. He says, for he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. I don't have to live as an ethnic Jew. In order that he might create in himself 
one new man in place of the two. And so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. Jesus didn't come to be a Jewish savior or a Chinese savior or or any other ethnic group. He is not the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant savior. He is the savior of a new race, born again by the Spirit of God, to save lost human beings irrespective of race, and to make them one new man, one new race or ethnicity altogether. In Christ or in Him is the term employed in the New Testament over a hundred times. And to think of ourselves in those terms is both sublime and overwhelming. It should lead us to something entirely different. I remember a few years ago, I'm going to run a little long, take your shoes off. I had the opportunity to go and speak in Denmark for about 10 days. And I had been in conference with the guy who was going to pick me up at the Copenhagen airport. His name was Fleming Rasmussen. Isn't that a great name? And uh, I said to Fleming, how will I recognize you? He said, you'll recognize me. I said, I'd like a little more than that since I'm flying halfway around the world. He said, you'll recognize me. We got off the plane in Copenhagen and I walked out and I saw this mountain of a man with blonde hair and a big beard, rotund, robust And one look in his eyes, and I knew who he was. And he said, it's that way with all the brothers in Christ, isn't it? It was. Now, they did some very nasty cultural things to me while I was there. I don't like seafood. I think it's buried in the water for a reason. (laughs) Because we're not supposed to see it or eat it or touch it or certainly not smell it. And they said, one night, we're going to take you out for lobster. And I thought, well, lobster I can handle because melted butter can cover anything. I mean, I put melted butter on ice cream. Let's do it. So they said, we're going to take you out for lobster. Well, lobster, something got lost in the translation, a little bit like Mark's, uh, what are you you thinking of? Um, What it was was big shrimp put on warm bread slathered with mayonnaise and eaten as a sandwich. Now, I've got this really well-trained gag reflex. But I, I choked down two of those puppies and I realized something really got lost. That these were my people. Even if they called shrimp lobster... And even if they made me eat it with mayonnaise on warm bread, these were my people because they loved Christ. That's all you needed. That's why the appeals in the New Testament to living in a holy manner are most often cast not in following laws and rules and regulations, but in living in accord with who and what we've become when we were born again, as Peter said in 1 Peter 1. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed. It's directly speaking to the, to the human birth process, but a, a new progenitor, but of imperishable. Through what? Through the living and abiding Word of God. What a heritage. 
Now, in this family, we've got kooks and renegades and all kinds of strangeness. But if they are Christ, they are ours. That's our race. We were not born again as Italian or Hispanic or Asian or Pacific Islander or Tibetan. We were born again as Christians, children of God. This is our racial heritage, and it's to this that we're to take ourselves as our chief identity, to grasp that. Peter's interested in relieving his, his readers of the stress of trying to figure out how to assimilate and interact with their new cultural surroundings by directing them to live first and foremost as Christians in those surroundings. And that takes away, don't worry about the cultural stuff. You can indulge in all kinds of cultural things. As long as it doesn't contradict who you are in Christ. To live in line with their true race and family and stock. And to think of themselves to, as, as Christians above all. But it doesn't stop there. We've got to move on quickly. The second thing that he brings up is, not only are we a new race, but we are a priesthood. Notice this again in the text. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. I wish I could really unpack this fully. We just can't this morning. By the Spirit of God, he brings them to another self-identifier that will inform all they say and do, and he asks them to consider their purpose in life. And this is the big thing, right? Don't we all struggle with purpose in life? Especially those, once, once you've, you've had to shift, maybe you've been in a, a profession for a number of years and you've retired or, or you, you've been outsourced or downsized or whatever the case may be. Or again, you've lost a loved one and, and what's my purpose? What am I here to do? Well, you're a priesthood, a royal priesthood. It's an astounding thought that he gives here. Peter's aware that we take so much of our self-identity from, from understanding what it is we do in life, from our career, from our job, from our activities. But he asked the readers to consider that before they are merchants or housewives or craftsmen or farmers or garment makers, that they are priests. I don't know if you know this, believer. When you were born again into the family of God, you were ordained a priest of the Most High God. A priest. Royal priests, ordained by God to the offering up of spiritual sacrifices, which he mentions later here. That we're about the holy privilege of honoring God in all of His saving glory everywhere and at all times. To make His goodness and His mercy and His grace and His loving kindness and His holiness and His forgiveness and His patience, all that's glorious in Him, known to others. And how do we do that? Well, primarily by being the vessels that these things are poured out of. That people might experience the goodness of God through us. But one of the things that you did this morning, I don't know if you knew what you were doing when you were standing and singing this morning, but you were exercising the office of priest as you were offering up spiritual sacrifices to Him. That's why people tell me, well, yeah, you can be a Christian and not go to church. Really? You don't want to serve in the priesthood? 
You don't want to be with other believers and offer up sacrifices of praise and honor. The blood sacrifices are all done. They were, they were finished in Christ. The only sacrifices we have left are praise and thanksgiving. And will we deny our office as priests to worship Him? To declare His goodness? What a calling for us. And you can do that anywhere. Doesn't matter what your job is, this is your calling as a priest. What an amazing thing he, he puts on us to, to make known the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And He packages that in two main ideas. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. There's grace you've been bestowed upon when you deserve nothing. And once you had not received mercy, and now you have full and free forgiveness. And so when we encounter the world, do they encounter us as a people who think of ourselves as graced and mercied in Christ? Man, what a testimony. Be a priest in that office. Be a priest in your home. Be a priest where you go. By offering up sacrifices of praise and letting the world know how good your God is. What a great thing He's called us to. And then the third one He mentions is in verse 10. Our citizenship. Let me go back to the text again. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. A people for His own possession. And what I want to suggest to you is that on the basis of what the Holy Spirit has written here, is that we ought to not think of ourselves as evangelical Americans, but Americans only in the sense of being resident aliens. It's what Peter stressed in the beginning part of the chapter here. Back in chapter 1, he wrote to his readers as exiles. Let me just unpack that quickly from the uh, Karen Jobes Baker commentary. The term peripedidimos or peripedidomai in the, in the plural was used in the first century to designate someone who did not hold citizenship in the place where he resided and was therefore viewed as a foreigner. The Borsics know this well. And the lack of citizenship implied that such people did not enjoy all the rights and the privileges of citizens. And moreover, as foreigners, they were not necessarily expected to hold the values and practice the customs of their host culture. Because of such differences, foreigners were often looked upon suspiciously as potentially subversive to the established social order, an attitude not unfamiliar even today. As Peter expects his first readers to take this idea in fully, so does the Holy Spirit expect us to take in these same ideas. We are truly strangers in a strange land. And we shouldn't think that that's odd. That we're Christians. He was talking to them and said, you know what, you're a Christian before you're a Roman or a Galatian or a Pontian or a, a Cappadocian or an Asian or a Bithynian. And guess what? You and I are Christians before we're Americans or Germans or Dutch or Irish or Italian or African or Tibetan. And Christian, before we are, please hear this, not meant to be controversial, just clear. We are Christians before we're Republicans or Democrats. 
before we're liberals or conservatives, before we're independents or libertarians or progressives or socialists. This is what's absolutely foundational to our self-identity. We can be all those other things in the second place, but never in the first place. Christian defines us over and against everything else, and these unchangeable, these are unchangeable, no matter what culture we find ourselves in and, and in what paradigm may be shifting around us, what reality may change. And I think few of us really consider that very often let alone live in the conscious reality of it. But I would challenge you all today to begin to think in these terms, terms that will radically transform the way you see yourself and therefore in the way that you interact in this present world and age, a people for his own possession. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. What did he do? Well, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Be your own culture in the midst of the one that surrounds you. Own your race, your purpose, and your citizenship. And let the rest of it fall out where it might. And all of this, in closing, leaves us exactly where we closed out last time. Because here's the question that must be asked. Are you a Christian? Are you? Have you indeed been born again by the Spirit of Christ? Have you seen and owned and confessed your sin and running to Him for forgiveness and trusting in His atoning sacrifice at Calvary alone for your cleansing in the blood of Christ are you trusting in that alone for your right standing before God, for your acceptance with Him? Or not? Well, you can only be one of the two races, that of Adam or that of Christ. And so I ask you as we close that you search your heart to see which one you are. Nothing can be more important than settling that question. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the amazing clarity, again, with which it speaks. How you address us in the most fundamental realities of life. That this isn't just some religious exercise, but it is truly life itself in you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who may be struggling with the things of this present culture as it seems to collapse around us and change that you would give them courage to take up their new identity in fullness. And that in that identity, we might understand that there will come some rejection. Oh, but that we are in Christ. And that is all we need. And for those here who might not know your saving grace yet, they are still walking in opposition to you. Oh, they might be religious. They might know the words, the terms. They come to church. They read their Bibles. They pray. But the truth is they've never been born again by the Spirit of God. I would pray that you would move in their hearts and minds today to reveal to them their lostness. And to plead with them by your Spirit to run to Christ where there is forgiveness where there is new life, 
where there is full reconciliation to you. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You're dismissed.